0: Hi there, this is Darren Spoo, pastor at First Baptist Church in Tulsa, and welcome to our weekly message podcast. We would invite you to join us in person Sunday morning at 8.30 and 11 o'clock in downtown Tulsa, or check out our webpage at tulsafbc.org. God bless you, and have a great week. There's a UK-based horticulture company called Thompson & Morgan, and they have recently grafted together two very different plants into one. Above ground, where the fruit is, there are cherry tomatoes. But below ground, where the roots are, there is a potato. So they have grafted together a tomato and a potato plant. They've called it a tomtato, or it's more commonly referred to as the ketchup and fries plant, because you have the major ingredients you need to produce ketchup and french fries. So isn't it awesome when two really great things come Together, I want you to hang on to that idea for a few minutes. So I'm going to take us to John chapter 2 today. This is the last teaching uh, message in the teaching series over anger. But before we get to that topic, I want to give credit where credit is due. John is a brilliantly written gospel. It is intricate. It is exquisite. It is artistic. It is multi-layered. One way of reading the Gospel of John is to look at the seven I am statements of Jesus. I am was a name for God in the Older Testament. And so when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus is communicating to us his true identity. His true identity is divinity. So that's one way to read the Gospel of John. Another way is to see it as two parts. Basically, John 1 through 13 is called the book of signs. There are seven signs, and we'll look at that here today, seven signs that point to who Jesus is. Now, think about what a sign does. A sign doesn't bring attention to itself. It points to something beyond itself. So if a sign says Topeka, 20 miles, it points you toward the destination. So these seven signs between John 1 and John 13 point to what happens in John 14 through 21, the ultimate epiphany of who Jesus is as the Son of God through His crucifixion, His death, His burial, and His resurrection. Those, that's where the, all the signs point is to that. So in John chapter 2 is the first sign of the seven signs where Jesus takes water and turns it into grape juice. Oh, sorry, I was reading my Baptist translation of the Bible. It should be Jesus turned water into wine, right? And Jesus is not trying to offend our modern scruples. What He's doing there is he's, he's putting a sign out for us to pay attention to. The water that Jesus transformed in these large containers was used for ritual washing. But wine was used for joyful consumption. What is, what is that sign saying? It's saying that, that God doesn't want to just be a ritual in your life something superficial, he wants to be in your life and to transform the way you view the world. Now, how does that relationship with God move from ritual to relationship? Well, that's what the sign points to, that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection made that relationship possible. But in John 2, there's also something very unsettling where Jesus, out and out, gets angry. And Jesus clears the temple of all the money changers. This is a very famous scene. I even had an art professor tell me in college that, that, or told our class, that Jesus wasn't really angry. He was only pretending to be angry. Jesus is really angry here, okay? And I think it's important for us to understand why and understand what Jesus is trying to communicate to us. So this is John chapter 2. I'm just going to walk through this story through this account. John chapter 2, verse 13, it was almost time for the Jewish Passover. Passover was the most important Jewish festival of the year. It was the high point of the year. In fact, you don't know this, but the Hallmark Channel actually existed in ancient Israel, and they had all their Passover movies during a certain time of year. And one particular one is of a, uh, a big city um, priest who, who goes to this little town and he meets a little small town seamstress and they're trying to save the synagogue together and it's so romantic. They end up kissing in front of the menorah when it's all said and done. Just a wonderful Hallmark episode. If there was Hallmark back then they would have been making Passover movies, right? It's like Christmas today. It is a big holiday, okay? So this is a a very public time. It was time for the Jewish Passover. Jesus went up to Jerusalem and in the temple courts he saw people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting there exchanging money. Now this is not all bad. In fact, there's parts of the Old Testament that give permission for this to happen. So imagine this, imagine you live in the first century, you're gonna take your offering to the temple and it's a sheep. So if you live 90 miles away, You have to lug, you have to drag that sheep all the way to Jerusalem with you and all the challenges that come with that. It could get lost, it could get sick, it could die. And so it was easier to sell your sheep where you lived, take that money, something would be lost in that that, uh, exchange, but you could come to Jerusalem and there you could buy another sheep to stand in its place. And so it was easier to buy something there locally, it was meant to be a convenience. Same thing with the money changers people carried in their pockets, and I have an example of this. This is a Roman denarius, it's a small silver coin. But they couldn't give this money at the temple as an offering because on the picture, and you can't see it here, but on the front is a picture of the Caesar. And Jews had very strong opinions about worshiping, about recognizing any image. It was, they were averse to any kind of idolatry, right? And so what they would do is they would change this silver coin a Roman denarius for a a Tyrian shekel. And it was a very fine silver. Most importantly though, it didn't have the image of a human being on it. And so they would exchange this money for that and they were able to use that in good conscience in the temple. Now, why does all this matter? Well, originally the marketplace was probably set up as a place of convenience. Let's serve pilgrims, but then it became corrupt. And people charged more because they could charge more. And it was hard for people to come and deal with God because so many people were around trying to make a deal, right? They could charge a lot, they charged a lot because they could. It's why you pay seven bucks for a Coca-Cola at a baseball game, right? You're, You're stuck, you only have one option. So Jesus sees this bilking that is going on of people who are coming to worship. They can't deal with God because they have to try to make a deal and they're all getting robbed. So Jesus took a whip He made a whip out of cords. I was reading a a little piece um, as I kind of studied anger for this teaching series that the children have two ways of expressing anger, verbally and behaviorally. Well, so do adults. Adults have two ways of expressing anger, verbally and behaviorally. So Jesus, without saying something, He's going to behave in a certain way. He makes a whip, not out of leather, but He takes some of the the branches that are used for bedding for these animals and he, he braids it together, he plats them together. And it's important here to know that he doesn't take this whip and turn it on the people, he turns it on the cattle. The whip, it wouldn't be a leather whip, it wouldn't hurt as much, but it wasn't gonna tickle either. And Jesus drove the cattle out, he didn't turn the whip on the people, he turned the whip on the cattle. So Jesus made a whip out of cords, drove all out of the temple courts, the sheep, the cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned all of their tables. What is Jesus doing here? He is out and out, angry. Is he just messing with people? I'm going to confess to you, I had a pretty weak moment the other morning. I had to take a family member to uh, the doctor for an early morning procedure, and so I was sitting there in the waiting room about 6 a.m. Oh, it was so early. And there were about a dozen of us sitting in this waiting room, all of us had brought somebody there who was having a similar procedure and, and uh, a woman sitting there, an older lady, was not aware of the room. So she was scrolling through Facebook, that's fine, but she had her Facebook set on autoplay and she had her volume cranked up as loud as possible. So every time a video would come up, it would blare in the room and everyone was looking at each other. Somebody needs to go talk to this lady. And they were all kind of looking at me. So, you know, I was about to get up and go over and talk to her. But that time, she went to go check in her friend for his procedure. And and she said, well, how will I know if my friend's okay? They said, well, give us your phone number and we'll text you updates. And so she said her phone number out loud. And before I knew what was happening, I found myself writing down her phone number. Now I had her phone number. Now you need to know that when I make a call, my number comes up as unknown caller, it's a blocked caller, because I only give a few people my cell phone number. And so she comes back to sit down, and I start a little game. I found out her name was Kathy, because she announced it to everybody. So I started playing this game called Call Kathy, that every time she would scroll through and this video would play really loudly, I would call her on my cell phone. I don't know what got into me, but I feel so ashamed, but it was so funny. So every time a video would play, her phone would ring, and she would say, unknown caller, and she would try to answer it. And of course, I wouldn't say anything. I would just hang up, and and she said, people are so irritating. I go, you don't say. So I did this for a solid hour. I played this game called Call Kathy. And I could tell by the end she was pretty mad. And uh, so as I got up to leave, as my family member was through with their procedure, got up to leave, I could tell she was mad. I went over, and I said, hey, I don't know what's upset you today, but... My church is doing a teaching series on anger and I would invite you to come and and listen to that. I didn't really do that. I was just messing with her. Was Jesus just messing with people here or was he really trying to make a point to drive something home? I believe that he was. Part of what Jesus does here is he's communicating the old sacrificial system. Of having to bring animals in and sacrifice them in hopes that it will address your sin, all that's about to be done away with because Jesus Himself would be the sacrifice for us. But also He was angry because what was there shouldn't have been there, just people buying and selling and making deals, and what wasn't there should be there, a reverence for God. So it gets even worse, verse 16, to those who sold doves He said, get these out of here, stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. This is the worst of all. Jesus tells the the dove vendors, get this stuff out of here. You see, if you were rich, you would come to the temple and give an ox. If you were middle income, you would come and you would give a sheep. If you were lower income and you were trying to eke out an existence and you could only afford just enough to sacrifice, you you would buy doves. For pennies. So these were the people that were taking advantage of the poorest worshipers who were coming. Jesus saw this abuse and it offended him greatly as it should. Zeal for your house will consume me. Verse 18, the Jews then responded, what sign can you show us to prove that you have authority to do this? See the word sign? Jesus had just shown the first sign in John chapter 2, and they said, what, what sign shows us that you have authority to do this? And again, it's pointing to what Jesus is about to do in the future, His death and burial and resurrection, to say that's the sign of my authority. In fact, He says as much. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, He's referring to Himself, and I will raise it again in three days. Little note here. This comment would be used against Jesus at His trial, it'll be misquoted. Somebody will say, he said he was going to destroy the temple. No, I didn't say that. I said, you will destroy the temple. And He's not talking about the physical building. He's talking about the temple of His own body. They replied, it has taken us 46 years to build His temple. Footnote here, it's a comment like this that helps us date the ministry of Jesus that we know exactly when Herod started rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. And so this puts Jesus' death at about 29 A.D. It's stuff like this that really smart people help us figure out when Jesus lived. It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days. But the temple that Jesus spoke about was His body. After He was raised from the dead, His disciples recalled what He had said. And they believed in the Scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. So isn't it awesome when two really great things come together? And Here we see at the temple in Jerusalem what should come together, the presence of God and the presence of people who need a relationship with God. It's awesome when those two things come together. But there were so many things happening in the temple that were outside of that most important thing that were distracting and deterring people from that most important thing. And so what Jesus communicates is this, this is not a time for business as usual. This is not a time for business as usual. So, the temple in Jerusalem where all these events take place, that temple was destroyed in about 70 AD by the Romans. They came in and wiped it off the face of the planet. The temple no longer exists. And if what happens here applies only to the temple in Jerusalem, this is all interesting, but it's archaic. This event is interesting, but it doesn't really apply to anything. However, if you read the New Testament carefully, the New Testament points out that there are three other temples, three places where the presence of God and the presence of humanity meet, and by the way, it's really awesome when these two things come together and we need to be really careful not to mistreat these temples because Jesus is passionate about God and humanity meeting. Here's the first temple. The first temple is Jesus himself. In fact he refers to himself as the temple here, a place where God and humanity meet that Jesus is fully human and fully God and both meet in Him. Colossians 1.19 says this, says, God was pleased to have all of the fullness of His deity dwell in Him. It's really awesome when two great things come together. What happens? We often misuse Jesus as these vendors were misusing the temple in Jerusalem. I can think about it in a couple ways. Many times we just come to Jesus to get what we want. Either we want salvation or we want prosperity and we want to make a deal rather than deal with God. Also I think we're rather flippant with Jesus and I'll use the phrase dilly-dally. We seem to dilly-dally with Jesus in regards to this. We really want Him to be our Savior but we're not really sure that we want Him to be our Lord. We, We want to go to heaven when we die. And we want to get the good things out of life here and now. We, we want to be pleased, but I don't know that we really want Jesus to push us with his lordship. You know, what's it going to take? And I think most of us live with this idea that, hey, maybe one day I'll get around to following Jesus. And maybe we're waiting for this big event, this, this big life changing event that, okay, now I'll get serious about Jesus. I was in seminary. My good friend Charles was sitting next to me. We took a lot of classes together. And he he was having some struggles in his own spiritual life and we had shared those together and uh, the professor was talking one day about a a pastor who uh, was struggling, wasn't really fully committed to the Lord, but one day a good friend of his died and boy, he got on fire for the Lord. His church got on fire for the Lord and it was a a life-changing event. Charles heard the story. He turned to me and he goes, Spoo, that's what I need you to do. I need you to die so I can get really excited about the Lord. I need that traumatic event. For some reason, I've, it's always stuck with me over the years, and maybe it's this. That big dramatic event has already happened. It's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. If you're waiting for a big event, it's, it's already happened. That's where all the signs are pointing to. What are we waiting for? Let's no longer dilly-dally with Jesus. This is not a time for business as usual. It's time. For us to understand that Jesus Christ is to be our Lord and when He becomes our Lord, then He becomes our Savior. It's not a time for business as usual. The second temple that the New Testament refers to, it's in Jesus. It's really awesome when two great things come together, God and humanity, it's in Jesus. The second temple is the church. In fact, it's Ephesians 3 that talks about us being a temple that Christ is the cornerstone that the apostles and the prophets are the foundation, meaning their teachings, what we have in the Scripture, and we are like different stones being put together in this temple toward God. It's the church itself, not the buildings, okay? One writer years ago said the buildings is where the church goes to get out of the rain. We. the church the people in the church now here's where I want to refer to two things that Jesus says in other Gospels when the same event is recorded one is you've made this a den of thieves talking about the temple in Jerusalem let's make sure the church does not become a den of thieves let's make sure we communicate to our world that we don't want anything from you we want something for you we want the presence of God for your life You know, when the folks at SeaWorld train a new orca, a new killer whale, and probably they'll take this this orca in as a baby for days and weeks and months. They won't do anything but just play with that whale and feed it for months before they even start training because they want to communicate to that whale one thing, we mean you no harm. People are very slow and reticent to come into a church because there are other churches and there other places of society they just want something. They want something from you. Let's not be a den of thieves. Let's make sure our church is a place where people can connect to God and we need to send the very clear message, we mean you no harm. In fact, all that we want for you is to experience the presence of God in your life and a restored relationship with Him through Jesus Christ. Second thing Jesus said is, uh, in, in another gospel with this scene. You, this is a den of thieves. My house is meant to be a house of prayer. And I want to mention this because we're getting ready to start a new teaching series next week on prayer. Um, I told our staff at a recent staff retreat, listen, we, we have teaching series that draw a crowd When we talk about anxiety and anger. Those, those topics kind of draw a crowd. Prayer doesn't draw a crowd, but what it does do is it draws us close to God. And what does it mean to be people of prayer? What does it mean to be a church that believes in prayer? People who live prayer out in their lives. It's one of the ways that we honor the presence of Jesus among us, is to become people who turn our need Godward. So those are two of the temples. And by the way, for the church, it's not time for business as usual. We need to be a praying people because we live in a hurting world. So there's one more temple that the New Testament refers to. There's Jesus, there's the church. The final temple where God and humanity meet and it's really awesome when two great things come together. The final temple mentioned in the New Testament is you. This is 1 Corinthians chapter six. It says this, do you not know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you have received from God, you are not your own. You are bought with a price. And, and Paul is talking there about the larger issue of, of sexual immorality. He says, This right here, you, your body, is a temple of God, where God and humanity, two awesome things, come together and meet, and that is good. The reason I I mention that to you is, it's not time for business as usual. We live sometimes in a scary world where we go into a place, whether a workplace, a school or uh, an environment, a neighborhood, a meeting and we don't sense God is there. Guess what? You as a temple, you bring God in with you and you represent Jesus Christ in whatever situation you find yourself in and it's not time for business as usual. It's time for us to be people of passion, and people of compassion, and people of conviction, and people who do not compromise, that we live with the presence of Christ in us. Not time for business as usual. So you've heard of the locks of Scotland. One of the biggest locks in Scotland is uh, Loch Lomond. Of course, you probably have heard of Loch Ness, where there's a mythical creature there. I didn't realize that there were almost 300,000, excuse me, 30,000 locks in Scotland. But there's one particular lock I want to talk about. It's called Loch Leven. Loch Leven is just a very typical little lock, it's where water has been confined there for centuries. And, and there's a little island in the middle of that lock called Loch Discussion, excuse me, the Island of Discussion. And when people in this particular clan that live around this lock, when they, when they have a disagreement, two parties disagree, they're butting heads, things are getting bad, they go out to the island of discussion. And there they are left a supply of cheese, oat cakes, and whiskey. And they're expected to stay on that little island until they come to an agreement. When they do, they then row over to another little island called the island of covenant And there they write up the agreement and sign it and it's made. It's interesting in the last 1500 years, there's only been one homicide in this area of Scotland because two people go to an island until they settle their differences and they make a covenant with one another. It's really awesome when two great things come together, God and humanity. What's kept us apart for so many years is called a thing, a thing called sin, and it has separated God and humanity. But God and Jesus has come to us. He has come to our island, and He has met with us face to face, and He has created with us a covenant. And it's really awesome when those two things come together. But get this, Jesus Christ has done everything He can for the sake of your soul, but He leaves the final decision up to you to say yes or to say no, my invitation to you today is come over to the Isle of Covenant and say yes because there was a death, one death that restores our relationship with God and not only the death but the resurrection of Jesus Christ that restores our relationship with Him. It's really awesome when two great things, God and you, come together. Lord, bless every person who hears this message. Jesus, it is not time for business as usual. It's not time for us to dilly-dally with you or to play church or to pretend like we're all alone in the world. All three, Jesus, the church, us, we are your temple, and would you help us to live as such today. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May God grant you peace, now and forever. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to our weekly message podcast. At the end of each worship service on Sunday morning, I offer a simple blessing, and I offer that blessing to you today. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face shine upon you. And may God grant you peace, both now and forever. Amen.